Just before we begin, I wanted to let you know that this episode contains some swearing and descriptions of physical violence. Please use discretion. The Croat War was very different from that in Bosnia. The brutality against places like Vukovar was, um, was mind-blowing, but it was a war by agreement. The Serbs wanted their bit, the Croats wanted their bit, and independence. Bosnia was completely different because it was an outright sudden aggression. It was a hurricane of violence. The way a hurricane forms is pretty simple. It just takes a lot of heat and some time and you've got yourself one of the most violent and destructive forces on Earth. And I guess Ed Vuliami's metaphor makes sense. War isn't all that different from a hurricane. It can take very little for it to sweep through places which had only known peace for years and turn them into rubble, quicker than should be possible. In this episode, we look at how one single municipality in the northwest of Bosnia, Priedor, experienced its own kind of hurricane at the start of the Bosnian War, because it's a startling example of how a normal society can descend into chaos and division extraordinarily quickly, something that happened all across Bosnia at the beginning of the war. So I want to find out how Priedor went from a typical multi-ethnic municipality to being a collection of decimated towns, with thousands of people deported, killed and detained in concentration camps. From Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica, this is Untold Killing. My name is Alexandra Bilic. I didn't feel any kind of discrimination myself, actually until 1989, when I was 17. It was a kind of year when, at least I, noticed first differences, first issues on political level. In a country where names would become designators of fate, Sadkos is pretty neutral. My name is Sadko Mujagic, which is not really Bosniak or Muslim whatsoever. But Sadko is a Bosnian Muslim, a Bosniak. In most cases, you can tell what someone's ethnic identity is just based on their name. For example, Sadko's father's name is Hussein. It's a really typical Muslim name, of course. My name is Alexandra Bilic. I'm from Sarajevo. I'm part Bosnian Croat and part Bosnian Serb. And my surname, Bilic, is both Serbian and Croatian. But it's not so much a commonly used Bosniak surname. So Sadko grew up in a town called Kozarats, and he lived there with his two brothers, his sister and his parents until the war began in 1992. And Kozarats is one of the many towns and villages that make up the municipality of Priedor, and with the city of Priedor itself being essentially the capital of the area. There was a census done all across Yugoslavia in 1991. It was the last one they ever did before the country fell apart. And so we know that the biggest ethnic group in the Priedor municipality back then were Bosnian Muslims. They made up about 44% of the population. 42% of people identified as Bosnian Serbs and just over 5% as Croats. But each town and village had a slightly different makeup. Some were majority Serb, some Croat, some Bosniak, or they were evenly split. 
And just like all the other people I've spoken to from Bosnia throughout both series of Untold Killing, Sadko says that in Priedor, before the war, it was not an issue between people uh, about different backgrounds. It took me really years as a teenager to understand there are differences in terms of ethnic background, in terms of religion. As he mentioned earlier, the first time Sadko noticed his own ethnicity, his name, being an issue was when he was 17. He was in school, sitting next to a Bosnian Serb classmate. The teacher was also a Serb, and that day Satko had an oral exam. He told me he hadn't studied enough for it, but did an okay job anyway. He thought the teacher would give him a B. He was actually quite satisfied. When he was about to give me a grade, he asked my number in the school book. And when I gave it, he opened and he, he started looking further. He said, no, Mujagic, he couldn't realize it's me. And then I said, no, no, it's me. And he said, oh, Hussein. The teacher didn't remember his surname. And like I said before, he wouldn't have known that Satko was a Muslim, judging by his first name alone. But he knew another Mujagic, Satko's dad Hussein, who he knew was a Muslim. He saw it and he got really red. And he said, oh, I have some more questions for you. And he asked, he asked really nasty questions, which I couldn't answer. And he looked at me like, I don't know, something changed in his, in his eyes. And he just said, oh, you really disappointed me. He gave Satko a C minus. And I really was like shocked. I mean, uh... this happened in 1989, a couple of years before Yugoslavia disintegrated. But that was when the first signs of division among the people and ethnicity started showing. Satko told me it was because at that time, the Yugoslav Communist Party, who'd held absolute power since World War II, lost its unifying grip. What clearly uh, facilitated, if I can say so, the um, divisions between the ethnic groups was something which is normally actually very positive, and that's democracy. Satko believes that the story of Priedor, of Bosnia, and of everything that came later starts with the politics, and here's why. So in 1990, Yugoslavia held its first democratic elections, and that seems to have given the leaders of the six different republics that made up the country the room to manoeuvre for power and to work against each other. New national political parties sprung up across the republics and in multi-ethnic Bosnia, suddenly there were new parties that worked for the benefit of only their own ethnic group. We had Serb Democratic Party, Croat Democratic Unity, SDA of, of Izebegovic with Bosniaks. Uh, very quickly, it, it turned, let's say, from patriotism to nationalism. The leader of the Serb Democratic Party, the SDS, was none other than Radovan Karadzic, and Alia Izetbegovic of the SDA, a multi-ethnic party with a Bosnian Muslim majority, would become the first president of an independent Bosnia. The two men later stood on opposing sides in the war. But in Priedor, the two parties ended up having to share power in the local government after the elections. Neither got a big enough majority. I remember after the election, somehow uh, I got the feeling that things would calm down, or at least this, this whole euphoria of democracy, of elections, you know, of power to other parties would, uh, I don't know, create new reality. But the Yugoslav elections didn't stop these divisions, they accelerated them. Croatia and Slovenia started exploring the idea of becoming independent. And in Serbia, the largest republic in Yugoslavia, President Milosevic opposed them, 
on the surface to try and keep Yugoslavia together. But Satko says it wasn't as simple as that. It was not about Yugoslavia as such. It was really about creation of Greater Serbia. You may remember this idea of Greater Serbia from Series 1. Essentially, it was Serbia's president's plan to gain control of Yugoslavia and all its republics, and assuming control of the infrastructure, money, media and military power of the crumbling Yugoslav state was his tool for creating this Greater Serbia. Anyway, in 1991, it was the last time of peace and uh, basically the situation rapidly got worse. Slovenia and Croatia declared independence and the divisions in Bosnia were really very visible. The, the rhetorics of, of politicians in Sarajevo, as well as in Belgrade and, and other capitals, was more and more radical. And I think everybody who knew a little bit about history or who knew a little bit about politics could feel already that it was going to the wrong direction. Croatia and Slovenia declaring independence in June 1991 was a blow to Serbia's plans. You may remember from the last episode that around this time, Ed Vuliami got his first call about the Yugoslav wars. Something strange happening in uh, Slovenia. The Yugoslav army appears to be mobilizing against a bunch of people with hunting rifles and uh, talking about separating from Yugoslavia. But the Croatian war was more relevant to what happened in Prijedor than the one in Slovenia. The Croatian border is only about 30 kilometers from Prijedor. Some of the other survivors from there who I've spoken to said that they could often hear sounds of battle coming from Croatia in the summer of 1991. And what's more, many Bosnians from Prijedor actually fought in the Croatian war. I was um, engaged myself. In Yugoslavia, they still had the national service back then, which meant that all healthy young men had to join the army. In 1991, many of them were deployed to fight in the war in Croatia on behalf of Yugoslavia against the Croatians. But since quite a few of the young soldiers from Prijedor were ethnically Croat and the Bosnian Muslim soldiers already felt conflicted about fighting on behalf of a Serbia-dominated Yugoslav army, the Croatian war just added to the ethnic divisions between Serbs and non-Serbs in Prijedor. So after Satko finished high school in May and went through military training in Serbia over the summer, he was sent to fight in Croatia in mid-September 1991. I really realized while being in Croatia, entering Croat villages where people are were basically expelled or they fled in front of us in order not to get killed, of course, I realized I'm, I'm on the wrong side. He lasted for only about a month and a half before he decided to desert. That was not my war. I was in the Yugoslav army, which de facto already then became Serb army. Serbia was gaining more and more power by this point, almost completely taking control of the Yugoslav army. 30 October, I fled. Actually, my dad came to the barracks where we were held at that moment, and he brought some civilian clothes, and, and I fled, I, I left the army. I spent maybe a three weeks in Kozarac again. It was really very strange time in November. Situation was very tense. Everybody was now really waiting for, for something to happen in Bosnia. At the same time, Bosnian government decided to declare independence. And again, you may remember this from series one. The results of that referendum were pretty clear. Almost all the votes were in favor of Bosnia breaking away. That overwhelming result is usually explained by saying that the Bosnian Serbs boycotted the vote. But Sadko doesn't think it's that simple. If you look at the statistics, even in the cities where Serbs are a majority or cities like Sarajevo, which was quite mixed, I read that about one quarter of Bosnian Serbs also voted for independence. So it's not the fact that they were like all of them pushed into, into this. 
I'm saying this because uh, what I really don't like in the whole discussion is this constant assumption that the whole war and the whole issue is about nationalities. It's all issue is about the religion. I really know it's not the truth. The whole war was about politics. The whole war was about getting more territory. What Sadko is saying is that the Bosnian Serbs in Serbia wanted to gain control of the territory that the Bosnian people voted to make independent. And weeks after the independence referendum, the Bosnian Serbs besieged Sarajevo, effectively starting the Bosnian War. But the war didn't play out just on a national level. Serbs lived alongside Bosniaks and Croats in Bosnia, especially in really diverse places like Priedor. And so the Bosnian Serb leaders needed to convince their people that they should turn against their own neighbours. Media and propaganda really played a major role in all this. This is where we get to something I find really fascinating about this story. Propaganda, media disinformation. It's stuff that still feels really relevant even today. And Sadko says that he himself fell victim to it back when he was still in the Yugoslav army, deployed in Croatia in 1991, when the enemy of the Serbian-controlled Yugoslavia was Croatia, not Bosnia. If you remember, Sadko did his army training in Serbia, and so naturally, all the television he and the other young soldiers watched was Serbian. And only in two months, the Serbian television managed to get me that far to think that I'm going to defend Yugoslavia if I go to Croatia. I realized this is what I have to do. I was myself, together with all the other guys with me, brainwashed, simply brainwashed. Every single day you could just hear about Serbian villages being attacked by Croat police, uh, Nazis waking up again, uh, mass graves, etc., uh, etc. Et A lot of the Serbian propaganda against Croatia tried to revive the legacy and fear around the old Croatian fascist regime which during World War II killed thousands of Serbs, among other ethnicities. Painting Croatian independence as the return of mass violence against Serbs and other Yugoslavs. I really must say, I, I, to some extent, I understand some of them. I understand the fear, because really, back in the 40s, uh, the Ustasha regime of Croatia was not only basically uh, killing the, the Serbian population within Croatia, it also happened in Bosnia, it also happened in my region. So I can clearly understand, especially if, if, if your father or grandfather, grandmother, whoever was, was killed there, that growing up in this setting, that you really have this fear, this feeling of uh, you don't want it to happen again. But what happened is that it went two steps too far, basically. But then after his training in Serbia finished, when Sadko actually went to Croatia as part of the Yugoslav army for that month and a half before deserting, he was able to see the reality on the ground for himself. What I found in Croatia was actually opposite. There was no single Serbian house which was destroyed. There was no single Serbian house with the one single hole of the bullet. So we did not really come to defend anyone. We were basically used to attack Croat villages in order to create Greater Serbia. So the propaganda was so tough and so intense that, that even me, at some point in time, started to believe in, in, in it, started to, to understand that we have to do it. And once Bosnia became the same kind of threat to Greater Serbia that Croatia had been, because of its independence referendum, the Serbs started using the same tactics against non-Serbs there. And Priedor is a very local example of how they did this. 
In August 1991, a paramilitary unit from Serbia took over the Prijedor TV transmitter tower. They cut off the Bosnian channel broadcasting from Sarajevo and allowed it only to transmit a channel from Belgrade in Serbia. The local Prijedor media, the newspaper and radio, gradually started spreading more and more stories aimed against non-Serbs. And it didn't stop there. Clear, clear demonization, not only of our nation, but also of individuals. Concrete example is, is uh, Dr. Željko Sikora, who was half Croat, half Czech origin. Kozarski Vjesnik actually wrote about him. Kozarski Vjesnik was the main local newspaper. He was gynecologist and they, they actually said that he was deliberately making Serbian women not be able to be pregnant. Sterilizing. Sterilizing, yes. Well, I mean, this is absolute rubbish. I mean, uh, he was a doctor, you know. It's people who know him, I mean, I, first of all, I don't believe any normal person, a doctor, would do that. And certainly not Željko. And this was already 92. The influence of Kozarski Vjesnik became even clearer to Satko later on in the concentration camp. He saw the guards there reading it regularly. And alongside trying to convince Prijedor Serbs that the non-Serbs were out to get them, the National Bosnian Serb Party, the SDS, started secretly handing out weapons to Serb civilians using local municipal branches of the party. Basically, what we learned later, more or less every village was armed. Looking back, it may seem obvious that the Bosnian Serb political leaders were building up to something. But at the time, to Satko and most of the other non-Serbs in Prijedor, that something came as a complete surprise. During one night, they, they simply took power. But it turned out that even that wasn't the end goal. It was just another step towards it. That's coming up after a quick break. On the 28th of February, 1992, Bosnian Serb leaders created a parallel Bosnian Serb substate called Republika Srpska, which might sound familiar to you from earlier in the series. And at the very beginning of 1992, the Prijedor Bosnian Serb party did something similar. They created a parallel Bosnian Serb municipal assembly of Prijedor. Behind the scenes, behind the curtains, in secret, basically. Essentially mirroring on a local level what the National Bosnian Serb party was doing. Now, at this point, the Bosnian Serb Municipal Assembly officially had no power. No one even knew it existed. But all that changed at the end of April. On 30th of April, uh, during one night, they, they simply took power. So let's say the government, which was created in secret, they had their own police, they had their own chain of command. Basically, they just made a coup. So uh, they took uh, the, the police station, they took the municipality building, the court, the prosecutor's uh, office and so on. And the same morning, all non-Serbs who worked in the police, who worked in the court, once they came to their work, they were sent, sent back home. So this meant that the SDS-created Bosnian Serb Municipal Assembly now had total control of the Prijedor municipality. And the one thing that boggles my mind about this Bosnian-Serb takeover is how smoothly it went down. In a municipality where, remember, there were more non-Serbs than Serbs. Do you think non-Serbs could feel this coming or could sort of predict that it was coming? For me personally, uh, it, it came as a surprise. But on the other hand, if I, if I remember the moment when it happened, the war already started basically. So it was just a matter of time. 
when what we saw on television in Eastern Bosnia or in Sarajevo would uh, come also to us. Was there any resistance to the takeover in Priador? Uh, that, that day, no. Uh, simply because Bosniaks and Croats were not that organized at, at all. The takeover happened across the entire Priador municipality. Control lied with the well-organized Serbs and their power was centralized in the city of Priador. They had enough weapons and people to exert control over the area. In the days and weeks following, each town and village lived through its own ordeal. They became more isolated and the TV transmitter that was taken over by Serbian paramilitaries back in 1991 still broadcast only Serbian news. So the non-Serbs found themselves in the weird position of seeing fake news about themselves on their TVs every day. It was us attacking them. So even news about Priador, we knew there were clear lies. We were blocked in terms of media. And as the days and weeks passed, the blockade became physical. At some point, uh, I believe it was 15th or 16th of May, there were checkpoints created at the eastern and western side of Kozarac. The villages around Priedor, which were majority Bosniak and non-Serb, were totally cut off because of these checkpoints. Some of the checkpoints were Serb-held to prevent free movement to the non-Serbs, and some were Bosniak and Croat-held to protect their towns from the threat of the Serb attack. In Kozarac, the non-Serb citizens themselves manned the checkpoints, and pretty rapidly, Tensions between the people inside Kozarets and the Serbs on the outside intensified. The non-Serbs could see the violence spreading across the rest of Bosnia on TV every day. They knew what was coming. So the people of Kozarets decided to start their own night watch. It consisted of a few hundred men and some women. Most of them didn't even have weapons, but they felt the need to do something. Satko was one of them. All kinds of threats, ultimatums and standoffs were happening between the isolated non-Serb towns and the Bosnian Serbs. But as strained as the situation was, weeks went by without an all-out attack until the 23rd of May. first town which was uh, attacked in municipality of Priedor, it was not actually Kozarac, but a small village called Hambarine on the south side of Priedor. From Kozarac we could clearly hear the, the, the shelling I remember it was just the day before Kozarac would be attacked. On 24th of May 1992, the attack on Kozarac started at uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. That morning, the Bosnian Serbs announced that a military convoy of theirs would pass through town. They ordered Kozarac to remove their checkpoints and allow passage. Naturally, everyone was afraid that the convoy would attack them. So they set up a watch and got ready to defend themselves. From about 10.30 a.m., Satko was stationed alongside the main road, waiting for the convoy. But nothing was happening. And then I, I realized I'm hungry. I didn't have any breakfast. So I said to, to the guys, listen, I'm going to go home quickly to eat and I'll come back. I said, okay. So about one o'clock uh, or something, I was at home. I was eating something. And then my younger brother, who was 16 at the time, he saw me and he said, hey, shall we uh, watch the movie till the end? The day before, the two of them had started watching a film and they didn't actually finish it. It was the movie um, Fly 2, you know, the guy who becomes the fly. 
Their house had two floors and their dad told them not to go to the living room, which was on the top floor. They'd be too exposed in case of an attack. But crazy as we were, we, uh, we thought, let's finish the movie and then that's it. So they went up to the living room and started watching The Fly, a film about a guy who becomes a fly. If you ask me, how did the war start for you? Uh, it started for me lying on the sofa, my brother lying on the other sofa and watching the movie. And the sound was so hard that we actually did not hear the first impact, first shells. And after a few minutes, I believe my dad entered the room when he was really red and with sweaty face and a- angry actually. He said, what the hell are you doing? And we were really like astonished, like, oh shit. And then he turned off the television. And the moment the sound was away, I heard the first explosion, which was quite close actually. Shelling began. And I I couldn't believe it. I remember we ran down. We started hiding ourselves away from the windows in the hallway uh, between the rooms and so on. My grandmother was under the stairs, which was the best place to hide actually in the house. And I remember I simply could not believe this was happening. I was looking at my brother sitting there on the floor and I even started smiling, laughing almost. It was a kind of instinct reaction of disbelief that that this is really it. It was so surreal to realize that my beautiful Kozerats, my town is, is attacked, was under shelling, that people are dying. Looking at the houses in front of us being hit seeing the the roofs being destroyed. The attack went on the whole night. Uh, This was also the last moments when I saw my grandmother. Satko told me that he was his grandmother's favorite. And then he instantly felt bad for saying it because he didn't want to be unfair to all the other grandchildren. But he knows it's true. And the two of them spent that whole night lying on the ground together as the attack was going on in the town. In the morning, a cousin of Satko's ran to their house and told them that people were starting to run to the woods, that maybe it wasn't safe to stay at home anymore. Now, just to say, other survivors from Kozaretz remember that it was actually the Serbs themselves who told the civilians to surrender and head to the woods, using loudspeakers. In any case, that's exactly what Satko's family decided to do, but they decided to leave his grandmother behind. We just thought after the attack would stop, we would come back home. Uh, I remember saying to her, we have to go now, but we'll come back. And I saw the tear in her eyes. And she was nicking like, to me, like, no, no. She was shaking her head at Satko as he was standing in the doorway, ready to leave. And then she said, uh, you're lying. And I said, no, 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 we'll, we'll come back, don't worry. Just stay here, you're safe here. And uh, we ran to the woods. It was a Monday, 25th of May, and in the late afternoon, the attack stopped. After that, he'd never see his grandmother again. And sometime later, while hundreds of them were still hiding in the woods, they were asked to surrender, again through loudspeakers. The Serbs guaranteed the safety of any civilian who came down to Kozarac without weapons. And so the next day, on the 26th of May, Sarko's family walked into town. The entire main street was filled with refugees like them, taking their chances with the Serbs. 
Sadko didn't see this himself at the time, but at this point, the Serbs already started taking men out of the crowd and executing them. Other survivors remember the Serbs restarting their attack while the town was filled with civilians. Later, many of those who survived were being loaded onto buses and taken away. No one knew where to, though. It turned out that there were two different destinations, and because Satko's dad knew one of the Serb officers, the family were allowed to get on one of the buses at the back of the queue. They were meant to be the safe buses. Everyone else on them, apart from Satko and his dad, was a woman or a child. All the other men were sent to the front buses. The convoy then set off as one, and from the window, Satko could see the buses in the front, ones filled with men, suddenly break off. The first two buses turned to the right, which was uh, a factory called Keramika, and the real name of the factory of the company was Kerater. But the bus that Satko was in took them to the city of Priedor. They were released in the city centre. To Satko, it seemed like the Serbs didn't know what else to do with them at that point. And in Priedor, where the Bosnian Serbs based their command, none of the anxiety and tension from the last weeks in Kozarat seemed to be present even though you could see the smoke from the attack on Kozarets rising in the distance. It was really surreal to see that people just walked around us, people who went to their work or, or to shopping, whatever. They quickly left the spot where they were let go and headed to Satko's mother's family who lived in the city. They stayed with them until the 30th of May. On that day, several things happened. First, there was an order to put a white flag on the house as a sign of loyalty to the Serbian government. So I remember my uh, uncle of my mother running up to the, to the balcony and putting this white sheet on the balcony as a sign of loyalty. But as a matter of fact, this was the, the way how to distinguish non-Serbs and Serbs. So what, what happened is actually it was only Bosniaks and Croats who were doing it. Because for Serbs, there was no need to do so. Serbs in Priedor felt no need to claim allegiance to the new Serb regime. Instead, it was a way of marking those who felt scared of it, non-Serbs. It wasn't just hanging up flags. Many people wore white armbands so that the Serbs saw that they weren't opposing the regime even when walking around town. The second thing that happened on the 30th of May was that a small group of Bosniaks and Croats attacked Priedor, trying to regain power. They had no chance against the Serbs. The attack was then used as an excuse to, in turn, start attacking majority Bosnak areas of Priedor. Ethnic cleansing had finally arrived to the city. Soldiers would barge into flats, drag people out of their homes and take them away. Or just kill many of them on the spot. Radio Priedor, the local station, broadcast news of the violence, saying the city was under attack and that the Serb soldiers was protecting it. At some point, perhaps inevitably, the soldiers got to Satko's family. The soldiers started knocking on the door of the house where we were staying, and uh, my uncle uh, opened. They were yelling at us, uh, looking for weapons, screaming, pushing us out. We left the house, and very quickly on the street, we realized that we have to divide, and men were uh, sent to the left side of the street, and the women and children to the right side. My brother was... 16, as I said, almost 17, and he didn't know what to do. He, it was quite chaotic situation. Soldiers are running all around. I remember houses burning just behind us. 
the old mosque and the old town was was burning in front of us. And my my brother was standing in, in the middle of the street, and my dad was telling him, Nazis, go away. His name is Nazis. Go away. Go to the mother. And he said, yeah, but somehow he thought he should join us because he was a big guy. But obviously it was clear that whatever would happen, it was better to be with women and children, of course. Sadko's brother was standing in the middle of the road, stuck. His dad and big brother on the left, his mum on the right. And then a Serb soldier walked past them. Sadko recognised him. They weren't friends, but they knew each other. They even went to the same New Year's Eve party just a couple of years back. His name is Alexander. And he passed by in uniform and, and he ordered to my brother, uh, you, your boy, go to the left. To the men's group. Sadko started pleading with Alexander. He's a child, please let him go there. He's a child. And he looked at me and he, of course, he recognized me too. And uh, he looked quite angry and he said, I didn't ask you anything. I could see that he was really pissed off because I dared to speak again. So I turned to my brother and I just said, Narcissus, give him your ID. So uh, my brother took his ID and he gave it to Alexander and he, uh, he opened it. He looked at his ID, he saw that the boy was born in 1975, June, and uh, he thought maybe for a second and he threw it back to him, to his chest, and my brother took it with his both hands, shaking. And he just said, okay, go, go, go to the right. So he basically kind of showed mercy. And he just went away. He didn't look at me whatsoever. He just went away. After that, Satko and his dad were taken away from the rest of their family, put on three buses alongside more than 150 other men, and they were driven past dead bodies lining the streets and back gardens of homes. We were taken to, to Omarska. That was the really first time for me to be in, in this factory in Omarska. I didn't even realize exactly where we are. Some others told me. I remember, the, we, we came quite late in the evening. It was almost getting dark. And as they were driving into the Omarska complex, this collection of dark red industrial buildings built on top faded grey concrete with the night drawing in, Satko saw the face of a prisoner through the bus window. Fear on the face of, of one of the inmates who I saw when we arrived was really uh, saying it all. Uh, the guy was really looking at us like, telling us with his eyes, this is a hell. Sadko was taken to a camp which was already full of detainees. And it wasn't the only one. Already at the end of May 1992, this was a large-scale operation. And so I'm curious, how were the Serbs able to run it? With the eyes of the world, the media and governments already focused on what was going on in the country. Four years later, in 1996, Ed Vuliami got curious about the same thing. Here he is again talking to my producer, Jake Atayevich. After the war, I went back on it. A very intelligent commission by The Guardian. They just said, Ed, tell us the untold stories. Go back, look under the stones to see what kind of shit is under them. What did you find under the stones? Oh, I mean, all sorts of stuff. I mean, horrific violence that had been hidden from view during the war. But among them, among the research was, you know, who knew about Omarska? Who knew about these camps? In 1996, Ed was able to speak to all kinds of people who, back in 1992, were dealing with Bosnia daily. 
and they told him who knew about the camps and when. Answer, the ICRC all the way through. The ICRC is the International Commission of the Red Cross. A wonderful man called uh, José Mendelucci of the United Nations High Commission of Refugees. He was at the ICRC all the time. They were talking about the camps. The ICRC you know, said, look, stay away, UNHCR, this is our territory. They always have this dilemma, the ICRC. Do they retain their access and their presence on the ground, or do they blow the whistle that might get them expelled? And they always err on the former, which basically means they never do anything. And that's not all. Ed learned that on the 15th of May 1992, that's two weeks before Satko himself was even taken to Omarska, Bosnia's ambassador to the UN informed the UN Secretary-General about the existence of detention camps. The ambassador said that he was, quote, not taken seriously. And then, one former US diplomat said to Ed that in May, even the US State Department already knew of camps. Ed told us that this was because the information was being communicated upwards by another diplomat on the ground. An unsung hero of it all called Henry Kelly at the US Embassy in Belgrade, who'd actually studied in Banja Luka and spoke the language and knew the ground, he uh, was putting cables through to the State Department from mid-May onwards. And then when Ed spoke to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Director for Bosnia, he was told that in late May, around the time Satko was taken to Omarska, refugees from Prijedor expelled to Croatia were already telling the UNHCR stories of these camps. The UNHCR apparently forwarded their testimonies onto the Red Cross because it was the kind of stuff they deal with all the time, the director said. And it seems that that's where that information stayed for months to come. At the end of May, the worst was still to come for the non-Serbs in the camps. And while all kinds of international players knew something was happening in Omarska and other places, they didn't understand the scale of it yet. On the next episode of Untold Killing, I speak to even more of the camp survivors and I try to comprehend that scale for myself. The month of July I used to call the killing days. Untold Killing is a co-production of Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica. It's written and produced by Jay Katajovic. Thank you to Elmina Kulisic, Kate Williams and Amra Mujkanovic from Remembering Srebrenica for helping put this series together. And also a special thanks to the Bosnian-American Genocide Institute and Education Centre for their partnership and support in fundraising, as well as Isla Delkic. Editing, mixing and sound design by Rowan Bishop, Sandra Ferrari is the executive producer and the theme music is by Matt Huxley. My name is Alexandra Bilic.